Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Lachlan, one of the pastors here. It's good to be back with you. Kenny and I have had a good couple of weeks on break, so thank you for giving us a couple of weeks of leave. We just stuck around Auckland, enjoyed going up north and having some swims in the beach up there. Uh, We enjoyed visiting a couple of churches and catching up with brothers and sisters up on the shore, out west, Uh, but it's good to be back with family here at EV and looking forward to getting into God's Word with us this morning in Acts chapter 8. So how about I pray that God would guide us and encourage us in His Word today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak to us, that you speak words of life, that you speak words that lead us to life and godliness. You equip us with everything that we need to live a life that pleases you. And so, please, this morning, would you equip us? We come expectantly. We come knowing that there's sin in our life that we need to fight, that there are ways that we need to grow to be more like Jesus. We come well aware of our failures, but we come knowing that you're a God who forgives, a God who's merciful and gracious and who wants to see us going well. And so please, this morning, encourage us from your word and send us out into this week ready to fight sin, ready to speak of Jesus, all the opportunities that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure it's not a surprise to you that the Christian message has always met with opposition. I'm sure you feel some of that opposition in your life now, and as we've been working through Acts, we've been seeing that opposition time and time again. People hear the claims about Jesus, that he's the creator God, that he's the king of the world, that he's the one who is worthy of worship and praise and honor, that he's the risen ruler who will return to judge. People hear these claims about Jesus and they not only disagree with them, but they find the claims about Jesus to be disruptive, to be offensive. And so they enter into a clash with the gospel. Sometimes it's an individual clash, sometimes it's organized and backed by the authorities, Sometimes it's just a verbal and ideological stoush. Other times it gets very physical. Think of some of those countries that Joy just prayed for, North Korea, Afghanistan, places where the government is very much in opposition with the gospel and trying to clash and bring it out. Whatever the nature of that opposition, I think the aim of those who clash with the gospel is always the same. The aim is to silence Christians, to stop the spread of the gospel, to stop more and more people from coming to see Jesus for who He is. They want to silence Christians with fear and stamp out the message about Jesus. In the book of Acts, over the last couple of months, we've been hearing stories of these kind of clashes. We've seen the leaders of the church, these early leaders following on after Jesus, they've been thrown into prison. They've been hauled before the authorities and told to shut up about Jesus, threatened with more violence. Last week, that opposition climaxed. If you were here, you would have heard in Acts chapter 7... The man Stephen, a lovely young man, good reputation, kind, full of the Spirit, full of grace. But the opposition against him rallied so much that as he was dragged before the Jewish authorities, they hated his message and they dragged him outside of the city and stoned him to death. The first follower of Jesus to be killed. This is a significant moment for a fledgling community of Christians. What impact is this going to have? What, what impact do you expect that the death of Stephen would have on the community? I mean, what impact do you think it would have for us? Imagine if, and I hope this doesn't happen, but imagine if tomorrow Austin gets kind of dragged before the authorities in Auckland because he's speaking about Jesus and they decide that Austin needs to be killed. What impact would that have on you? If Austin, one of our brothers in our church, gets killed for proclaiming the gospel... I imagine the people that killed Stephen thought that this might frighten the rest of the Christians into silence. 
This is the big victory. We've killed one of them. We're going to stamp this out. But this morning, as we continue into Acts chapter 8, we see that God has a very different plan. When people threaten and hurt and seek to harm Christians, God has a different plan. God's gospel overpowers persecution. God's gospel overpowers Satan's magic. And God's gospel reaches outcasts. It's wonderful what we're going to see in Acts chapter 8. God's gospel overpowering persecution, overpowering Satan's magic, reaching outcasts. You've got an outline there in the handouts that you received on the way in. You might take some notes in there. Come with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to pick it up at verse 1. The first thing we're going to see is the way that God's plans succeed through this severe persecution. Acts 8 verse 1. Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them into prison. So Stephen's death was just the start of this widespread assault on Christians. Severe persecution broke out. Apart from the leaders, the apostles, all the other Christians are scattered. They're running for their lives. Luke hones in on one young man who's instrumental in this persecution. His name's Saul. We met him last week in chapter 7, verse 58. The crowd there were picking up the rocks to throw at Stephen to kill him. They took off their coats because that hinders the good throwing arms. They're taking off their coats. They laid them at Saul's feet. Saul was one of these Jewish leaders. And so Saul agrees with Stephen's death and now he starts ravaging the church. He's going door to door, hunting out Christians, dragging them from their homes, men and women both, throwing them into prison. And this is the stuff of Nazi Germany, hunting down the Jews from house to house. This is the stuff of North Korea, hunting down defectors, getting neighbours to dob in other neighbours. Saul, with the backing of Jewish authority, is hunting down Christians. He wants to destroy the church and perhaps he thinks it's working. You know, the Christians are fleeing, they're running away. This looks like the persecution is working. There's a map on screen to show you the kind of regions and the geography of what's going on here. So Jerusalem up there is the dot that has three arrows coming out of it. I don't know how the size of that map's going to go for you, but you've got the dot there with three arrows coming out. That's Jerusalem. The region around that, Judea, and then Samaria to the north. Up until this point, the Christians have been hanging out in that city of Jerusalem. But now, with the death of Stephen, they're scattering, going throughout all of those regions. But have a look at verse 4 to see what happens as they go. Acts 8 verse 4, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Isn't that amazing? Stephen's death, the the severe persecution that came from it, it didn't silence the church. It actually achieved God's plans. It didn't crush God's plans. It was the means by which God's plans succeeded. God used this persecution to achieve his goals. Do you remember the task, the mission that Jesus gave his apostles back in Acts chapter 1? You've got to think back a few weeks to get back there. But Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it's up on the screen for you. You can flick back in your Bible to see it if you want. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus commissioned his apostles. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
the gospel news about Jesus was to go from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria. Where did the Christians flee to after Stephen's death? Throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. God used this severe persecution to see the news of Jesus spread. Persecution isn't a threat to God's plans, He uses it. He succeeds through it. He takes what seems like a defeat and turns it into a victory. And who does God work through as He does this? Well, it's not just the apostles speaking boldly about Jesus, is it? In Acts 8 verse 4, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the Word. It's all the Christians that are out there telling others about Jesus. They've had to leave their homes. They've had to move into a new region. They're living as refugees and still they get on with the business of proclaiming Jesus. I think it's helpful to note that they hadn't done some evangelism training course at this point. They didn't have life all sorted out. They had fled. They were in a new region and yet they knew Jesus. They knew that He loved them, that He saved them. So as they left their homes and their possessions, they couldn't help but speak of Jesus. It's not confidence, it's not a training course that will make someone an evangelist. It's a love of Jesus. Think about yourself at the moment. If at the moment you're not taking opportunities, you're not making opportunities to speak of people, to speak to people about Jesus, then the solution isn't going to be a training course for you. Spend some time this Christmas looking to Jesus in the Scriptures. Spend some time meditating upon His goodness towards you. Meditating upon the one who, though He was God from all eternity past, He stepped in and took on human flesh, as Rob read for us from Philippians earlier. Phenomenal goodness of Christ, phenomenal love of Christ to step into the world as a human infant. Think on His grace, His wisdom, His beauty. Meditate on Christ this Christmas. Meditate until He becomes your treasure, your most precious possession. Because when Christ is your all in all, then you won't be able to stop speaking about Him. And it's as you speak of Jesus, then you will grow in your confidence. Then your confidence to answer people's questions, you'll have a go at answering them, you'll get them wrong, you'll try again. It's not training, it's not confidence that will help you get out there and have conversations about Jesus. It's the love of Christ. Dig into the Scriptures this Christmas time, love Christ, see Him. It's not that we leave evangelism to the experts out there. Evangelism is for all of us. Acts 8 verse 4, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the Word. And then in verse 5, Luke zooms in on one particular individual who's part of this scattered church. He takes us to Philip. Acts 8 verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. So Philip was like Stephen, he was one of those men that was selected back in Acts 6, men of good reputation that the church appointed to help with the distribution of food. And when the persecution starts, he joins the others in fleeing, he goes to a particular city in Samaria and speaks of Jesus. Amazingly, many of the Samaritans believe and get baptised. That might not sound like much to us now because we've lost a bit of the context of who the Samaritans were. This is not a small matter here. We've already seen this is where God wanted His message to go to Samaria. But more than that, this is the gospel breaking through a a cultural barrier, reaching a whole new group of people. Uh, When you think of the relationship between the Jews and Samaritans, so the first Christians were Jewish like Jesus, they'd seen Jesus as the fulfilment of all their hopes of the Old Testament. The Samaritans to the Jews were the half-breeds. They were the mudbloods, the sellouts. Uh, 
they kind of taken Judaism but lost it. They had some Jewish descent, but then they'd intermarried with other races and corrupted the religion of Israel. So you had the temple of Judaism in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans then had another temple up in the north on Mount Gerizim, and that's where they worshipped. And to give you a sense of the relationship between these two kind of ethnicities, the Jews and the Samaritans, uh, in the second century BC, the Jews rallied together under a guy named John Hyrcanus and went up north to Mount Gerizim and destroyed the Samaritan temple. Uh, This isn't a friendly couple of nations getting on, so they went and destroyed the Samaritan temple. 150 years later, during the time of Jesus' infancy, about 9 AD, uh, the Samaritans got together and came down into Jerusalem when it was the Passover festival, and they brought loads of human bones with them and scattered human bones throughout the Jerusalem temple. This isn't like forking someone's front yard where you put all the plastic forks in it and laugh about that. No, this is desecrating the temple, stopping the festival. There was no love lost between these two nations. They held a deep-seated hatred for one another. So that's why it's amazing that through Philip, the news of Jesus reaches the Samaritans and they believe. By believing in Jesus, by acknowledging that he's the Christ, by switching their allegiance to Jesus... The Samaritans are now united with Jews, united with Jewish Christians as the one people of God. I was trying to think about some of the hostilities in our world that capture some of the same sense. I don't know that we've got any quite like this at the moment, but think about Americans and Russians coming together to worship one God together. Think about Tongans and Samoans in our own city coming together to worship one God together. Think about the Turks and the Kurds the moment waging war, imagine them coming to worship one God together. Up until now, the Samaritans had been outcasts, hated by the Jews. But now in Jesus, they're welcomed into God's people. Huge moment for the gospel, breaking through this cultural barrier. And because it's such a significant moment, God makes sure that the Jewish Christians are absolutely persuaded that the Samaritans are in could have been easy for the Jewish Christians to go, no, no, they're still on the outer, they're just Samaritans still, they're not really Christians. So have a look at what God did in verse 14. Acts 8 verse 14. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They'd only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. That's meant to sound odd. Back in Acts chapter 2, believing in Jesus, getting baptised, receiving the Spirit, they all came together in a single package. At the first moment of conversion, Acts 2 sets the pattern for what we should expect as Acts goes on. People believe in Jesus, they get baptised, they receive the Spirit, it's all one singular package. And so when we get to Acts 4 and 5 and 6 and more people become Christian, we don't hear about them getting baptised or receiving the Spirit. We just hear that they believed, but we're meant to have that whole package in mind. Acts 2 has set the pattern, then continues. And then we get here to chapter 8 and something abnormal happens, something out of the ordinary, so Luke highlights it for us. What the Samaritans experience here in chapter 8, this is not the normal Christian experience. It's not normal for there to be a time gap between believing in Jesus and then receiving the Holy Spirit. That's not normal. 
The two normally come as a package. Ephesians 1 verse 13 puts that package together clearly for us. It's up on screen for you. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. The two come together. That's the normal Christian experience. So in Acts 8, Luke highlights what is abnormal. They've believed, they've been baptised, but the third part of the package deal is missing. God's held off on giving the Spirit until the apostles, Peter and John, arrive. Why? Well, so that these apostles representing the Jerusalem church, the Jewish Christians on the whole, can see with their own eyes that the Samaritans are fully included into the people of God. The coming of the Spirit with the apostles present is this visible sign that they can't dispute. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what it looked like, but it became clear to the apostles that these age-old enemies that they had hated for so long, these sell-out Samaritans, had now entered into exactly the same relationship with God as they had. This is what God does through persecution. Stephen dies, the church scatters, and the gospel crosses over into brand new territory, uniting age-old enemies. Samaritans hear about Jesus and believe. Persecution, don't, don't let persecution, whether it's mild or severe, don't let it get you down. Don't see it as a defeat, as if God's enemies are getting one up on him. If you lose your job for talking about Jesus in the workplace, if you get cut off by friends because they're sick of hearing from you about Jesus, if you get disowned by your family because you're telling them about Jesus, don't see that as a defeat. Keep your eyes open for the opportunity that God will bring through that persecution. God uses persecution to fulfill his plan. He can't be stopped. His gospel won't be stopped. The church will keep growing. From Jerusalem, it's now reached Judea and Samaria. It'll go on to the ends of the earth. God's plans succeed through severe persecution. Now, as the gospel comes to Samaria, it comes up against another clash, another fresh opponent. Uh, another odd opponent for us, I think, it's the opponent of magic, not the card game and not kind of the illusions that we think of with magicians who are just smoke and mirrors on the stage, but real magic. So have a look at Acts 8 verse 9. Let's see how God's gospel overpowers Satan's magic. That's our second point. God's gospel overpowers Satan's magic. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. They're attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. So this city that Philip turns up to, they've already got their religion, they've already got a relationship to the spiritual world through Simon, this magician. They respected him, they listened to him, they were amazed at his power. There's nothing in here to suggest that he's just tricking them with illusions. This seems like real, genuine, magical power. So what happens when that magical power meets God's gospel? It's a pretty simple victory for God, actually. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptised. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptised, he followed Philip everywhere, and was amazed as he observed the sign and great miracles that were being performed. Did you see the switch that's happened? Simon, who had been amazing others, is now himself amazed at the gospel. 
the people, the city that have been paying attention to Simon, they're now paying attention to the things that Philip is saying. When it's the gospel versus magic, Philip hasn't had to do much. He's just spoken to them about Jesus and they believe. The gospel wins easily. As Simon's story goes on, it helps us to see that Christianity is a vastly different way of relating to God than magic. I don't know if that sounds obvious to you, it's a pretty obvious point, but it's one that's worth fleshing out because I think it is helpful for us to see. I think that's why Luke has included this story in Acts. The mindset of magic in the first century was that humans could manipulate the spiritual world. Through chants, through amulets, through rituals, the magicians thought that they were the ones in control over the spiritual world that they were forcing spirits to give them information or to make certain events happen the way they wanted them to happen. And that mindset meant that power to control spirits could be used to turn a profit. The magician could charge money for their services to come and exercise this control over the spiritual world. They could sell magical objects that they'd infused with power that others could then use to control the spiritual world. And we see this mindset in Simon... When he observes, you know, the apostles come down, the, the people in the city receive the Holy Spirit when the apostles lay their hands on them. Have a look at the way Simon responds in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see Simon's mindset? He's got that magical mindset. He doesn't have a category for the divine gift. Uh, He looks at the apostles and he thinks that they're just like him, that they have some power over the Holy Spirit. He looks at Christianity and thinks, well, Christianity works just like magic. Humans are now controlling God, controlling the Spirit, making God do what they want him to do. And so Simon wants that same power. I think for Simon's heart, I'm guessing that the text doesn't flesh this out for us, but If you think about what's happened for Simon, the community that once paid attention to him and loved him and admired him, they've now left him to follow after something else. And so I think Simon, he's come to believe in Jesus, but his old heart lingers. He he wants that power back. He wants that admiration back, that reputation. He's believed in Jesus, but it doesn't seem like he's thoroughly converted at this point. He wants his power back. And so he thinks that he can offer the apostles money and they can give him some of their power. That's the magical mindset, but that is not the way that Christianity works. The apostles are not controlling God, they're not manipulating God. And wouldn't it be terrible if that was the way that the church operated? If power could be purchased with money, that would be dreadful. If God's blessing could be purchased with money. Think about the abuse of power that could happen in that. Sadly, there have been many abuses of power when so-called Christian leaders have used their positions to turn a profit. That is not the way Christians relate to God. And when Peter responds to Simon, he, I don't think he could be any stronger. He says to Simon, to hell with you and your money. Have a look at verse 20. But Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. Luke wants to make the point that Christians are not magicians. We don't relate to God in a way that puts us in control of Him, to manipulate Him to our ends. 
Peter's language is quite careful there in verse 20. You thought you could buy God's gift. If you buy it, it's not a gift. If you manipulate God into giving it, it's not a gift. But the Holy Spirit, the chief gift of God, by whom all the gifts of God flow to us from Christ, the Holy Spirit moves where He wills. He can't be controlled. He can't be bought. So watch out for false teachers who try to sell you that kind of arrangement with the Spirit. Watch out for wolves who will say that you can buy healing for yourself by donating money to their ministry. Watch out for those who offer you a position of influence in their ministry if you give them money or gifts of any kind. Watch out for those who offer to give you the gift of prophecy or the gift of healing if you go to their school of supernatural ministry. Watch out for your own heart. Because I think in our hearts, sometimes we can easily slip into using Christianity and trying to turn it to financial gain or relational power. Watch out for that. Because that's all the magical mindset, seeking to manipulate God and turn a profit from that manipulation. That's, that's not Christianity. Luke wants to see clearly in, in this context where the disciples performing miracles in the first century, they could have looked like magicians. Luke wants us to see very clearly that something different is going on. We have a different way of relating to God and the gospel that we have as Christians is far more powerful than any magic. God's gospel overpowers Satan's magic. Now, we don't know what happened to Simon. Luke's made his point at this point, so he just moves on and takes us elsewhere. We've seen that God's plans succeed through severe persecution. We've seen that God's gospel overpowers Satan's magic. The last third of Acts 8 tells us that God's Spirit saves through a willing human. That's our third point. God's Spirit saves through a willing human. And the willing human is Philip again, the one that went to Samaria and spoke the gospel there. When we get to verse 26, an angel tells him to get on the road to Gaza. So the map's back up on screen. Those arrows that you saw were the trajectory of Philip. He started in Jerusalem, fled up north to Samaria. Now he's told by the Spirit to go on that south road down to Gaza. So he goes, he's on the road that the Spirit told him. As he's on the road, the Spirit tells him to go and join a chariot that he's seen walking past. Uh, It's kind of like era at the bus stop, you know? You're just walking past going, it's a bit weird for me to walk up to a chariot. But that's what the Spirit's told Philip to do. So he runs up alongside the chariot. And he hears that the person inside is reading the Bible. There's something going on in this interaction that God has set up. This is not an accidental interaction. God's got Philip there. God's got this person in the chariot. The person in the chariot is reading a portion of Isaiah from the Old Testament. And so Philip strikes up a conversation. He gets into the chariot. He launches from Isaiah to tell this man, an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, all about Jesus. Philip explains the gospel to the eunuch from Isaiah. The eunuch believes, gets baptised, he goes on his way. And then Philip is led by the Spirit out to the coast, to Azotus. Then he makes his way up the coastline. Uh, Verse 40 tells us, all the way up the coastline, he's preaching the gospel in all the towns till he comes to Caesarea. It's quite a cool narrative of Philip as a willing human just coming along, following God as he leads. And there's lots that we could draw from this third part of Acts 8, but I want to keep it simple for us and just point out how encouraging Philip's example is. Here's this man who's fled from persecution in Jerusalem and he's just getting on with talking to people about Jesus. Whether he's in Samaria, whether he's on the road to Gaza, whether he's going up the coastline, all that he's doing is consistently pointing people to Jesus. 
Now, we might think that it would be nice to have an angel or God's Spirit turn up and tell us exactly who we should go and share the gospel with. And some people launch from this passage and come up with a whole idea of spirit-led evangelism, where you just kind of sit in quietness, waiting till God tells you to go and talk to this particular person. And uh, generally, those who promote this kind of spirit-led evangelism have you just go and tell them that, you know, God told you to talk to them and that God really loves you. That's not what's going on here. Philip's not sitting back waiting till an angel or a spirit tells him what to do. He's been on with the business of telling people about Jesus the whole time. He's already hard at work. And as he's getting on with it, that's when he hears from God and he's, he's willing. He's like, all right, well, let's get on this road then, let's go. Uh, his willingness encourages me to get on with speaking about Jesus to anyone that I meet. I don't need to wait for an angel to direct me. I don't need to wait for the Spirit to tell me that I need to call someone. Uh, just get on with it and see what God brings about through that. The other thing that encourages me from this third part of Acts 8 is the way that God is so clearly active in bringing the Ethiopian eunuch to a saving knowledge of Jesus. This interaction didn't happen by accident. God's brought this about. And it strikes me that so far in Acts, Luke's been telling us about the big crowds who have come to know Jesus. We've heard about 3,000 in one day, then it growing to 5,000. Lots of big crowds along the way. But here he zooms in on just one individual. I think that shows us that God cares about each and every one who comes to know Jesus. We can get caught up in that mindset of just wanting the big crowds, the big revivals to happen. Acts 8 shows us that every individual story is a story of God bringing someone into contact with the gospel through an evangelist that will share Jesus with them and saving individuals. If you've become a Christian, you can see the work of God in your story, can't you? It's not an accident that you heard about Jesus. God orchestrated events to bring you into contact. I don't know who it was with, I don't know what the circumstances were, but I'm sure if you become a Christian, you can look back and see that work of God and be thankful for the way that He has worked. I think that encourages us to go out and, and be willing like Philip and keep our eyes open for those intersections that God brings our way, like Ira and Yai. Who's at the bus stop that you might talk to this week? Who are the people near you in the cafe that you hear them talking and you go, actually, they're, they're talking about Christianity. I should jump in there and say that I'm a Christian and chat to them. Who are the people you're going to meet at a Christmas party this December? It's not going to be an accident that God brings you into conversation with them. Who are the families down at the park at the same time as you, the, the conversations you're overhearing at work? God will bring those opportunities for you to speak of Jesus, just like he did for Philip, just like he did for the eunuch. And Philip could have come alongside that chariot and heard the eunuch reading the Bible and gone, oh, actually, I don't really want to talk to him today. Philip could have walked away from that opportunity, but he was willing. So let's be encouraged by that and see what opportunities God has in store for us this week. God's Spirit works through willing people to save. You might be here this morning, though, and you're not yet a Christian. And that's fantastic. I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that it's not an accident that you're here. God has orchestrated events to bring you here this morning that you might hear about Jesus. Perhaps you're one of those people who has been persecuting Christians in the past. You've mocked what they believe, you've thought, how stupid can they be? And yet now God's bringing you in to hear this morning that persecution won't silence His church, to hear that actually God saves people and that God wants to save you, that Jesus has come to offer you forgiveness. Perhaps you hear this morning you felt like the Samaritan 
you felt like the outcast and you thought, I could never be included into the people of God. And that's what's keeping you away from Jesus. God's brought you here this morning so that you could hear that the Samaritans got fully included into the people of God. God saves outcasts. The Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch was another outcast as well. If you don't know what a eunuch is, I'll leave you to ask your dad that this afternoon. Uh, But eunuchs in the Old Testament weren't allowed to be fully included in the worship of Judaism. They were restricted from temple worship. And so again, God is showing us in this passage that outcasts can be saved and fully included in to the Christian people of God. So if you're here this morning, not yet a Christian, you're feeling like an outcast, God's got you here to hear that He wants to save you. He wants to include you into His church. This morning is a great morning to come to Jesus, to trust Him as your Creator, as your King, the one who will save you from the punishment for your sin. Well, Acts 8 is a loaded chapter. There's lots of encouragement in there. You might still have questions from Acts chapter 8. I think the thing that strikes me as we keep moving on in Acts is that whatever the intended impact of killing Stephen, God's plans succeeded. The church was not stopped. The gospel was not stopped. God works through persecution. And I want to end by sharing a story with you. I've been reading a book over the holidays with a few others from church called A Company of Heroes. Really encouraging stories of God working in all sorts of different circumstances all across the world. And as I reflected on Acts 8, this story stood out for me of a man, his photo's up on screen, he died back in the 90s, uh, but he lived through persecution in Soviet Russia. Uh, He was put into a cell as a prisoner for religious activity. Let me read to you his reflection on his time in prison. His name was Georgie Vins. He says, When I was arrested for religious activity and denied the work for which I consecrated my life, I lost heart. I was put in a cell with approximately 100 other people after my first interrogation. Suddenly, I understood why I was in prison. Before going to bed, I prayed, Lord, it used to be so difficult for me to gather people together in order to preach your gospel. But now I have no need to gather them. They're already here. Make me a blessing to them. The Lord heard my prayer. Prisoners were coming and going through this cell. In a short time, 40 people believed in Christ. I taught them to sing hymns and pray. Guards often banged on the door and ordered us to be silent. The authorities finally found out what was happening and transferred me to the cell for hardened criminals. Precisely at that time, I received from my family a parcel containing bread, sugar and clothing. When I entered the new cell, the criminals' eyes searched me. I took a few steps, set my bag on the floor and looked around at them. Men, today I received a parcel. Maybe there are some needy among you. Divide it. A tall, sullen fellow, probably their leader, approached me, silently took my parcel and divided it equally among all of us. Here, this is your part, he said, giving me a portion and returning my empty bag. As a newcomer, I had to take the worst place in the cell, but the leader said, for good people, we have a good place. Now tell us why they transferred you to this cell. Well, in cell 44, I taught people how to pray to God. The authorities didn't like it, so they threw me in here. The leader smiled for the first time. Very good. Now you will teach us. (laughs) Authorities, persecution, people will oppose the gospel and try to silence God's church, but God's plans will succeed. I don't know what opposition you're facing at the moment. I don't know where you're feeling that tension to be silent. But speak. 
speak of Jesus because God's plans, God's gospel, God's spirit, God will continue to work. He is the great evangelist bringing together these intersections in our life that we might speak of Jesus and he might save people. So let's get out there this week. Let's tell people about Jesus, knowing that God will succeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the great evangelist. We feel our weakness, our frailty. We feel that we don't always have the words to say. And yet you promise to be with us. You promise to go with us, to work by your spirit through your word. The same spirit that was at work in the time of Acts is at work today in our day. And so send us out this morning with confidence. Send us out with willingness to speak of Jesus. For those of us who are lacking that willingness this morning, would you show us Christ? Even this afternoon, would we go home and spend time reflecting on parts of the Scriptures, reading the Gospels and and seeing and savouring Christ, that we might be captivated by Him. We might see His love and treasure Him. Give us that willingness as we grow to love Christ more and more. Lord, would you save people this week as we go out into the world? As we take those opportunities, we see the intersections that you bring about. Would you save people through our witness? Lord, we long for the day when Jesus will return, when we'll be joined together with all the Christians from across time, across the world, singing Jesus' praises. We, we long on that day to see all the different people that you've drawn to yourself and the different ways that you've been at work in all of their individual stories. Come soon, Lord Jesus. And while we wait, continue to work for salvation. In Jesus' name, for his glory we pray. Amen.